Good morning. My name is Clay, if we have not met before. And I have been meditating this week on a whakatoki, a proverb, which is well known. And that proverb goes like this. Nā nā takurorou, ka ora iwi. And that translates roughly to with your food basket and my food basket, the people will thrive. What that means is that uh, our community will thrive when we share our resources and when we look after each other. And uh, I want to talk about sharing this morning because sharing is caring. Write that one down, yep. It's uh, one of my whakatoki right there. Uh, now, I know that some people have a hang-up with regular giving or tithing to the church. And I know that because I have, in the past, had a bit of a hang-up with tithing or giving regularly to the church. And the reason why... I had a hang-up, and I know some other do as well, is because I staunchly believed that tithing is not a practice that is commanded in the context of the New Testament church. And where it is commanded, it's under the law of Moses, which I am not under as a Gentile. So I could always just dismiss it as being something which was for a different people under a different covenant. And so anytime anyone preached tithing or regular giving, I could just dismiss it as legalism. Uh, You don't want to be legalistic. So uh, that was convenient for me, that doctrine that I'd come to, because it meant I didn't have to tithe. And I could just give when and wherever I pleased. And... I don't know, there are some people who seem to be quite generous following that pattern of just giving whenever and and wherever they please uh, because they're generous. If you're not a really generous person and you operate under that pattern, turns out you don't really give ever. Somehow the Spirit doesn't lead you to give very often at all. All right. So yeah, another instance of a mighty work the Lord needed to do in me. Oh, thank you for your grace. And you can make a a strong biblical case for that, for the Old Testament and and that covenant, that law of Moses, which I, I am not under. But what we see throughout Scripture is that we are under another law. For the law of God has been written on our hearts. Jew or Gentile, Pakeha, Māori, Afrikaner, the law is on our hearts. And this law is established and reiterated throughout almost every letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the New Testament churches and many other New Testament books as well. And I want to have a little look at that this morning. And I want to start... In Acts chapter 2, 
Acts chapter 2 from verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Turn the page, Acts chapter 4 from verse 34. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. What kind of person sells a house sells property and gives the money away to the poor, to the church. What kind of person does that? A crazy person. Crazy or in love? Exactly what you were saying earlier, Greg. Crazy or in love? That's exactly what it is. It makes no sense, certainly by the values of this world, to sell property, things that you've inherited, things that you've worked hard for your, your whole life, and then just give it away. But this becomes the practice of the early church. Either they are crazy or they are in love, in love with their God and in love with his people. Exactly what we are called to do. The whole law comes down to this, love God and love people. And this is a very crazy way that it ends up being expressed. When Greg was talking about the love that some people have for their team, we're actually called to have that love. But what we need to realize is our team is not Liverpool. Our team is not the All Blacks. Our team is the people of God. It is the body of Christ. And we are called to love them passionately passionately, and in a way that would seem crazy to the world. And that is what we see in Acts chapter 2 and 4. People got crazy for their love for God and his people. And they did things that made no sense unless you understood what love truly is. The disciples of Jesus had a very different understanding of wealth and possessions. And Acts describes the practices of the church born under the empowerment and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is the church under the leadership of apostles who walked in the flesh and the spirit with Jesus himself. Their teaching they received directly from him. Generosity was one of the foundational principles and practices of the New Testament church. Right up there with teaching and prayer and fellowship and worship. Generosity was there with them. It's from Acts chapter 2 that we distill how the church is to operate together. And generosity is a key part of that. Generosity and generous giving is what the church does. So if you want to be an integral part of a Holy Spirit-filled church, we need to understand that that means fulfilling the purpose for which God has called us into being. And that means generous giving. That needs to be a practice of our faith community. But without this revelation, 
giving away our money to care for each other's material needs. That just sounds crazy. Or depending on your bent, it sounds religious. It doesn't fit with our perspective on life. And I have felt this as well. My head screaming, it is mine. I worked for it. I own it. It's mine. That is the flesh talking. That is not the kingdom perspective. That is not the spirit of God speaking in me. The issue here is our perspective on property and ownership. A problem, and my problem was, I had this idea that things belong to me. That they belong to us. But King David, as it turns out, understood the real truth. First Chronicles chapter 29. A lot of gems in Chronicles. We need to read Chronicles more, I think. Book gets overlooked. First Chronicles chapter 29. Great scripture. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things have I given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. First Chronicles 29, 11-17. I read that and I don't know if I need to actually preach anything after that. Doesn't that just nail it? That is the revelation that I want to have. And, but to get to that point where King David is, there's a whole lot of stuff in me that needs to be broken down. This idea of ownership and possession, which is, as it turns out, not held the same way in all cultures. Certainly, the idea of land ownership is very different between different cultures in this country. But in the kingdom, the perspective is, it's all God's. We're not owners in the kingdom of God, we end up becoming stewards, caretakers, who God gives resources to for us to use according to his purpose. We are trusted stewards, administrators, managers of what is his. What's amazing about David's story is he didn't even get to build that temple. His part of the project was the not-so-glorious task of capital fundraising. Yay! His son, Solomon, got to build the temple. 
David's hands were too bloody from a, a lifetime of warfare and conquest. But to him, the honor wasn't building. For him, the honor was giving. Wow. We give to God for the ministry of the kingdom. We give to him for the care of the needy. We give to him to build his house. We give to him because it's his in the first place. That's the understanding we need to come to. And we could argue, thank you, David, but isn't that just another Old Testament verse about giving? I live under the new covenant, not the law. What David's pre- um, sharing here in his prayer isn't law, though. The law did not mandate and require his extremely extravagant gift. That was an overflow of his love for God. You won't find that in Exodus or Deuteronomy or Leviticus. He loved God, and he searched for ways to worship and honor God, and that came out in an extravagant sacrifice. This wasn't legalism. It was love. An overflow of adoration and honor to God expressed in financial giving is exactly what New Testament giving is. So back to the New Testament. The consistent teaching and practice of the apostles and the original pioneering church that they helped build was generous giving. And when I say consistent message, what I mean is 10 specific narrative references in Acts and a specific narrative or teaching reference in each of Paul's letters to the Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, where Paul writes 1,300 words on the subject, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st Timothy, and Titus, plus references in Hebrews, James, and 1st John. I can't think of a single issue that the New Testament speaks as much throughout it as on this one, giving and generosity. And for some reason, it's this one is such a stumbling block for so many people. And it was for me. Clay, three years ago, if I came in, if I saw on the website that the topic was giving or generosity, I don't know. I don't know if I want to hear another one of those messages. I don't want to be convicted because I don't give enough. I don't want, people to, I don't want the church telling me what to do with my money. That was my flesh responding to protect what I had gathered and accumulated, to protect it from the church who's going to take it off me. What kind of spirit moves to protect the wealth you've accumulated? Does that sound like a godly spirit? Because I, I could feel it. My chest would tighten up. My shoulders would come forward. My arms would come round. I'd cross my arms. Tithing, really. Hit me with the law again, will you? I totally miss the spirit of what true generosity is. The spirit that would move to protect the wealth I was accumulating. That is a spirit that is in love with money and possessions. And not a spirit that is in love with God. Thank you, Jesus, that he enabled me to actually see that. 
I've heard some people have concerns about how money is managed and utilised by those in authority in church communities. And there are some contexts where I can understand that. But here's some things to consider and some things that I've had to consider. When you give, are you really giving? Are you really letting go? Or are there conditions on your giving? Will the amount of your giving depend on whether you agree with how the money will be utilised? Do you only give if you feel an urge to? So it's feelings-based. Do you ever withhold your tithe or offering if you're not on board with the church's new vision or if a leader has offended you or made a decision that you disagree with? When we tithe or put money in the church offering, we're not giving to the church. Well, I'm certainly not. This is, a, for me, an opportunity to bless God. And I give it through the offering here at The Rock because this is the church family that God has planted me in. If God had planted me somewhere else, I would give through there. But God has planted me here to be in relationship with you, to serve here with you, to be a part of this. And because of that, I want to give everything through here. And I believe that everything that we need to fulfill the vision God has given us is here in the house. I'm not, I'm not when we pray for, for God's provision, I'm not, I'm not looking for the floodgates of heaven to open and dollars to appear mysteriously like manna falling on the ground. God's already put everything we need in our hands. What I'm, I guess I'm praying for is for my generous spirit to open up so I can let go of what he's already put in my hands. And then not only is the resource released to the church, but suddenly through this process, I am more like Christ. I'm not giving to Greg or any of the elders or the leadership. I'm, I give to God. It's part of my worship. It's part of the way that I honor him. I honor him with my finances. It's a part obedience and it is part alignment and participation with his ongoing mission here. And once we understand this, that we are actually giving to him, the next revelation follows. And that is the revelation that God has raised up leaders in the church who carry the mandate for financial stewardship. I am not one of those leaders. God has not entrusted the financial management of the church to me. Michael Hewitson is laughing because he knows me, and he is imagining a world where Clay McGregor is responsible for the finances of the church, and he finds that hilarious. So praise God for that. God has raised up leaders, and some leaders have a responsibility for financial stewardship. The church, if you were not aware, is not a democracy. The kingdom is of God is not a democracy. We don't go with what most people vote for. If we did, the church would be a very messed up place. 
the kind of government that we have and we strive for is a theocracy. That means God's in charge and we just have to do what he says. Doesn't that just sound easier? Yeah, we're working towards that. Yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> God appoints leaders to administer resource in the house, and they must steward these resources as best as they are able under the guidance and leadership of the Holy Spirit with diligence and integrity. These leaders will be accountable, accountable before God for how they have managed the financial affairs of his church. So the elders are not accountable to me for how they decide the money should be utilized. God has given the, the vision of this church through the apostolic and prophetic offices in this church. The elders have come to that agreement through prayer and confirmed with one mind, one heart, where God is leading us. I need to trust that these men and women of God are hearing from, um, hearing from him. I can't be second-guessing every decision they make as if somehow I know better. Somehow I know the word of God more than them. I know the prophetic word of God. It's, it's hard, certainly for me, and I know a lot of other people, not to want to be in charge of everything. I don't want to be in charge of everything. I just want everyone to do things the way I want them to. So I'm not sure how that works out, but yeah. I don't want to do the stuff, but just, yeah, do it the way I would do it. And, and when we do that, and so... We, we kind of want to be the boss of things, certainly over what's our own finances, but over the church as well. And so, yeah, when we don't quite agree with everything, uh, we, um, I don't know, maybe we don't, we don't want to give so much. Are we the boss? Is it a democratic process or are we prepared to surrender? Ah, uh, Surrender. We need to trust God and trust the leaders that he has installed and actually release our offering when we give it rather than hold on to it in our mind as we question and challenge how it's used. But rest assured, the financial resources here at The Rock are covered with diligent oversight. They're covered with checks and balances that ensure integrity before God and the IRD. We're good. We're covered here. There has been financial mismanagement, even fraud, in some other communities. Maybe you're aware of that. Maybe that's part of your reasoning. But that is not our story. Our pastors aren't driving luxury cars and living in mansions. So what if God did choose to bless them in some other way? I, uh, I was working at another church before I came here. And I, I remember one week my senior pastor drove into the car park with a, with a newer model car. It wasn't new. It was an ex-taxi, uh, ex but it looked, it looked new and it looked really good. But it's kind of a mid-range sedan. And I heard two people that Sunday under their breath joking in a, in a snarky kind of way about, oh, yeah, the pastor's got a new car. And, I, 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 and my spirit grieved. And actually, my spirit just got angry. I, I, I couldn't believe that it's okay, it was okay for anyone else in the congregation can get a new car if they want. They can get a brand new luxury sedan if they want. But a mid-range ex-taxi, that's a bit too good for our pastors. Aren't we supposed to keep them poor and hungry for the Lord? Well, you're doing a good job, so thanks. <laughs> I'm not hungry. 
But yeah, it was, there's this weird double standard. And somehow, and, and I heard two people saying this. I don't know how many other people thought this, but what kind of a spirit jumps to that, starts judging someone because they've got a new second-hand car. Uh, and it became this whole thing. I don't know. I don't know what, how you feel about... It's, it's a weird setup. There being people in your church community who are actually paid for part of their role. But um, I don't know the scriptures teach that, that there are some who, who do carry that and that they're worth their wage. So um, I don't know. We need to trust God with these people and, and pray for them as well. An interesting study in scriptures, how finances were used in the, the New Testament time. Wading through the wealth of scripture on the matter, you will find that the financial priorities of the early church fell into three main categories. Uh, the needs of the community, uh, the mission uh, of the local staff and itinerant ministers, and the needs of the global church. Most of the stories from the early church in Acts relate to the church taking care of the needy among them. When property was sold, the proceeds were given to the apostles to minister to the needy, who were described in Acts chapter 6 as the widows. And the task of caring for the widows became so demanding that the apostles didn't have the time to preach or pray as they had called to do. And so they appointed spirit-filled men to administer the task. This ministry ultimately moves beyond Jerusalem to be central to other fellowships as well, with Paul devoting most of a chapter to Timothy on how to manage this ministry in Ephesus. Paul urged Timothy to specifically challenge the wealthy believers to share from their abundance and bless those who are in need. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. So the church took care of the needy among them. They also had a heart for the mission of the gospel. Paul and the other apostles were devoted to the full-time ministry of the gospel and pastoring the church. Everyone needs food to eat. Everyone needs clothes on their back and a place to lay their heads. And so do full-time ministers in the church. Without going into a discussion on the truism that we are all full-time ministers of the gospel, some of us are doing that while we're at our other job, which actually pays us. Some of us are called to devote every minute to that, and we're not being paid for something else at the same time. These are our full-time ministers, our paid staff. The ministry of the church today needs some people whose primary focus is the administration of the church and the equipping of the church, and we need to pay these people. Paul is an interesting study in this area, there are seasons in his ministry where he chose to support, support himself and his co-workers by working part-time in his trade. He was a tent maker. And he worked in some seasons alongside his ministry so that he would not be a financial burden on that church he was ministering to and so that financial issues would in no way cloud the message he was trying to bring. We see that in... 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, and 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 10. But at other times, he was supported financially by generous churches and disciples from other cities who provided for him when he was on mission. We see that in 2 Corinthians 11 and Philippians 4. It says, 
Uh, you Philippians know in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. At other times, Paul was supported by those in the community that he was administering to. We see that in Acts 28 and Romans 16. Paul's word to his protege in 1 Timothy 5 is just as true today. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is threading the grain, and workers deserve their wages. It is right and proper thing for people that God has called to full-time ministry to be paid for their labor. And this requires God's people to be generous in their giving, so these workers and their families can be properly supported. And yes, I do have a vested interest in that. Turns out I have a mortgage like normal people too. Turns out I trust in God for my finances and always have. So I don't want you to feel any particular burden for Clay McGregor. The Lord's got me covered and I'll be okay. The real challenge for us all is just to honor him with our finances and let him do what he wants to do. The last area that the church was using the, the Lord's resources was in the ministry of the global church, the care of the people of God around the world. There was no such thing as denominations in the first century. It was just the body of Christ. All believers were brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when the church family in another city or country was suffering, when they were in need, the believers elsewhere dug deep to relieve them in their famine and poverty. And a classic example of this is in Acts chapter 11, from verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the believers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And other accounts are recorded in Romans 15, 2 Corinthians 8, where Paul urges the church to excel in the grace of giving. I love the fact that this church has such a rich history of partnering with churches around the world that have great need financially. The ministry this church has had in Mexico, in India, and now in Cambodia, where there are people who love the Lord and are filled with His Spirit and doing wonderful things, but lack just in financial resource. The idea that we can partner with them to not only bless them spiritually and pray for them and send over leadership to invest in them at that level, but we can also support them financially as well is, is amazing. And if you've, you've never spent time in a third world nation and seen what real poverty is, it can be hard to know. We talk about needs, but we live, uh, we live in a nanny state. And that's a good thing. It means that our people will always be fed. That doesn't exist in most of the world. So the idea that we can partner with churches around the world to be that support, it fills me with confidence that we are on the right track. Generosity, giving, 
loving, hospitality, charity. It was an integral part of the character and practice of the New Testament church, and it needs to be now as well. Take confidence in knowing that the church community of the rock is utilizing the resources God releases to us in the same way that the early church did. Supporting those who are struggling financially in our own community. I've, I've not seen that before. Knowing that this is a place where if you couldn't pay your power bill this month, that the church would get alongside you and cover that for you. I've seen that kind of thing happen so many times here. Whereas in other churches, that kind of thing, just it, just, it wasn't a thing. Everyone was left to their own devices. And so if your family had no power this month, well, you wouldn't even know because we just didn't even talk about it. But here it is a place where you can share your needs. And the only thing holding back your needs being met is pride. Not a great place for pride, the church. The ongoing challenge for those responsible for stewarding the financial resources here at The Rock is trusting that God will release the resource required. And I do believe that he will. Please pray for our elders and delegated leaders that we would use the resource God puts in our hands prophetically with integrity and diligence. There is a moral here. I, I don't want to bring conviction. I don't believe that the word convicts. But it certainly does challenge. It does teach. It does rebuke and correct. And it equips us for what God's called us to. Conviction is something different. Even reading these scriptures again, it is challenging me and you to push deeper and to be more generous than I have been. The moral for me has been that I need to continue to loosen my grip on what God has put in my hands and not hold so tightly. When we loosen our grip on money, it allows God to move in a whole other area of our life and bless his people and bless ourselves. I believe that where the Spirit guides, our Lord provides. God always gives us enough money and resources to fulfill the vision he has given us. Of course, most of that is in our bank accounts. Getting on board with God's plan means investing financially. So whether it's the poor in Africa or the vision here at The Rock, we need to let go and let God do what he wants to do in us and through us. Let's live and give like we really are wholehearted followers of Jesus. And live and give like he did. Resource is supposed to flow through our lives like a stream. I received this picture of it at a, at a conference a couple of years ago, and I love this image. A stream flowing through cleanses, it purifies, and it feeds, and it refreshes. Flowing water refreshes. It's still water is stagnant, it turns brackish, it corrupts, it turns filthy. And money can have the same effect in us when it's still 
when it accumulates and stays in one place like that. In us, it can corrupt. As it accumulates and starts to get bigger, it becomes a thing all of itself. It becomes our nest egg or our retirement. And our, our faith starts to come in our nest egg. Our nest egg, that will take care of us when we're old. Not God. We don't have to worry about God because I'm taking care of myself. And it becomes an idol in our life. I didn't used to understand this. But then I grew up in a culture which was all about taking care of yourself, about independence. Flowing water cleanses, freshes, and feeds. Still water corrupts. In light of God's word this morning, there are two things that I really just want to bring out again. Two things that we can respond with. I want, to, I want you to pray as I will that the Holy Spirit would transform our minds so that we can see our wealth and property as it truly is. God's resource in our hands for his kingdom. And secondly, that we would get into the habit of giving generously, even giving crazy, like the disciples of old did. Giving gets easier and more fun the more we do it. And I'm hearing more and more stories of people who are doing this. And it challenges me in the best way. I remember a little while back, one of our family gave $30,000 to support the mission in Cambodia. Friends in my life group gave a young family a car. Family, um, faithful people throughout our community have been committing to giving regularly here to honor God and to invest in, in his kingdom. We need to come to the kingdom perspective not only on our finances, but just on our lives in general. Money's just a wee part of it. And I'm only banging on about it you know, this week and last because it seems to be such a hard teaching for so many people. It is such a stronghold in our culture. And I know that's not the case for everyone. I used to hate hearing preaching on tithing and giving. But there was a different guy who was actually the guy who needed to be hearing this stuff. We need a kingdom perspective on our whole life. Why are worldly values and priorities shaping the decisions that we make with our life? Where we live, where we work, how we use our time and finances. How does God's will, God's plan for us and his church factor into these decisions? Money is just one little bit of it, but it's the one that so many of us stumble on. It is an idol, a sneer, and so no wonder Jesus preached so hard on it himself. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Money was the example he used for that. It could have been anything else. But no, it was money, and it still is money. If you were to be charged in court as a lover of God or a lover of money, which case would have the most compelling evidence? Of course, our giving starts with our most prized possession. Our giving starts with us, with our life. And if you are not fully surrendered to God, 
if he does not hold your life in his hands, if the Spirit of God does not live within you, I know that everything that I've preached is just religion. This only makes sense when the Spirit of God is alive within us, transforming us, shaping our heart. And I do praise him that he was patient with me to wait it out and continually prodding me till I would allow him to do this work in me and help me to surrender yet another stronghold in my life that I was holding on to. And so for some of us this morning, before we can, we can surrender this one part of our life, we actually need to give the rest of it and surrender control. I'm okay now with God being the Lord of my finances because I now understand what it means for him to be the Lord of my life. And we've been calling him Lord, Lord forever. It doesn't matter what you call him so much as what you actually let him do. Is Lord an empty title? Or does it have power? If he's Lord of my life, he's Lord of everything. So I guess that's my just my final question. Is he really your Lord? He's a good Lord. He'll look after you. But let him have it. Let me pray with you. Would you would you stand Would you stand with me? Let's 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 lift up a prayer together this morning. And if there's anything I say that you agree with in prayer, please just affirm that and lift that up with me. Father God, I I want to just want to start by confessing again, Lord, that I hold too much back from you. And I proclaim here amongst my brothers and sisters all in this place that you you are my Lord and I want you to be my Lord, not just in word but in deed. So I surrender to you every part of me. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to unlock those parts of me inside which I've held back, that you would truly be in every sense the Lord of my life. I thank you for your grace and for your patience and that you've promised that the good work that you've begun in me, Lord, you will continue, Lord. I pray you'd help me to participate in that, in my ongoing salvation and sanctification, Lord. That I would let you do this work of me and surrender. This morning, I surrender again my finances. And I recognize that everything I have is from you, and I thank you for that. I thank you for the job you've led me to and the salary I get. I thank you, Lord, for the generosity of friends and family who have been so good to me and my family. I thank you, Lord, that this is, these are just ways and means for which you provide for me. And I recognize, Lord, that every resource is, is yours and it's for you and for your glory. And I thank you that you bless me with it. But I know that you've blessed me and my friends here, blessed me to be a blessing. And I want to bless you. And I want to bless my family here. So I pray, Lord, just continue to do this work, Lord. I want to love you and not money or anything else that would pull me away from you. So I give it to you again now, Lord. And pray, Lord, the confession of my mouth would, would see a reality in my lifestyle as well. I pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit, who is my teacher, would remind me of the things that you have showed me. That your scripture, as I meditated on this week, would come alive in me. 
and I would see a deeper meaning of what you truly want. I pray, Lord, for a breaking, Lord, in the spiritual realm now, a breaking, Lord, of any hold that the enemy has over myself or my friends here this morning that is tying us down to money. I pray you'd break those bonds. And release us, Lord, to a new life of freedom. That we would not be chained, chained to, to money anymore. We'd look to you for our provision. Would look to you to look after us. And we thank you, Lord, that you're so faithful to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.